China, China, China can't operate the global economy with them, can't operate the global economy without them. Undeniably ground zero of the coronavirus, China is also the world's first major economy to be struck by the pandemic, but they also are the first major country to announce a return to economic growth since the outbreak of COVID. In fact, by the second quarter of 2020, China's gross domestic product achieved positive growth. By the third quarter, they had achieved 4.9% GDP growth. So it might behoove us in exploring the question of how we bounce back the fastest from COVID-19 to look at China. And chances are, if you're listening to this program, it's because you have operations in China. All of which begs the question, are you listening to the right transfer pricing podcast? I hope so, because it's the Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions weekly transfer pricing podcast. I'm your host, Matthew DeMella. We're joined by Cross-Border Solutions chief economist Mimi Song on today's episode. Mimi wrote a white paper about the OECD's guidance on COVID-19. You can find that at xbs.ai. And today we're going to talk about COVID's transfer pricing implications for entities in China. In speaking of being uniquely qualified to discuss academic subjects, you can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting three CPE code words throughout the course of this show. Send all three code words to the Fiona show at xbs.ai. Again, that's the Fiona show at xbs.ai. Now let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Don't take a siesta on your transfer pricing. The Spanish tax agency announced that it will be cracking down on tax avoidance, tax havens, and permanent establishments in 2021. Where will it be looking exactly? Corporate restructuring, financial transactions, transfer of assets, particularly intangibles, tax of new digitalized business models, and profits provided to permanent establishments. Transfer pricing documentation is also an area of increased concern with special attention paid to information obligations and the FAR analysis. While it's full steam ahead on tax enforcement, the government must remember a very big disruption. Remember that little thing called COVID? The government plans to follow the OECD guidance on transfer pricing implications of the pandemic and will direct attention to multinational groups in areas least impacted by the virus. As if their plates weren't full enough, the tax authorities are planning to implement an automated transfer pricing risk analysis system, which will use information from country-by-country country reports, automatic exchanges, unilateral agreements, and mutual agreement procedures. Paper filing is so last year, at least in Thailand. The Thailand Revenue Department is now requiring companies to submit transfer pricing disclosures online. It applies to accounting periods beginning on or after January 1st, 2020. The disclosure is required by companies who make 200 million baht or 6.7 million US dollars in revenue a year. If a company finds itself Unable to file online, it's required to provide a letter with the paper file explaining its course of action. The online submission is a win-win for the Thai Revenue Department and Shrees. It allows the Revenue Department to take a closer look at disclosed information and make swifter selections on who to audit. While the days of paper trails are behind us, online trails are just beginning. Ireland's extended lockdown isn't the only thing making headlines this week. Transfer pricing changes are newsworthy, too. The Revenue Commissioners, Ireland's tax agency, released an updated version of Tax and Duty Manual, TDM, 
Part 35A-0101 Monitoring Compliance with Transfer Pricing Rules Contained in Part 35A Taxes Consolidation Act TCA 1997 Catchy Title Part 35A of the TCA was recently updated by Finance Act 2019, which widened the transfer pricing rules to extend to capital transactions and capital allowances. The guidance addresses the OECD's 2017 guidelines adoption in law and covers benchmarking analysis, penalty protection, types of transactions excluded from transfer pricing rules, and specific guidance for analyzing financial transactions. As for specifics, the guidance emphasizes the mandatory preparation of a master and local file and increases penalties for failure to do so. Looks like you'll need a little bit more than the luck of the Irish to ace compliance. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. Welcome back, everyone. We're here again with Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song. Mimi wrote a white paper about the OECD's guidance on COVID-19. You can find it at xbs.ai. Today, we're talking about COVID's transfer pricing implications for entities in China. China has a unique position in COVID, given that it was hit first by the virus and also recovered first. So, Mimi, let's start from the top. It's March again. Are you getting a lot of questions from clients about how to handle transactions due to COVID-19. Oh, absolutely. Now that companies are closing their books and trying to wrap things up, it's more top of mind, right? So mm -hmm. lots of questions about, okay, what should we do here? Should this be considered? People want to make sure that they're not recording things inappropriately or creating any transfer pricing related issues. So mm. definitely a lot of questions. Somebody asked me yesterday if I had to just roughly quantify how many companies are applying changes versus companies that are not doing any responding to changes because of the pandemic. I did sort of wave my finger in the air and say, I don't know, maybe about 30% of companies I speak with, right? So that's right. very rough numbers. It's not based on any scientific evidence, but... <laughs> Anecdotal, of course, but coming from, coming from a source like you still, still carries great academic weight, especially in this forum. Let's dive into that a little bit more, Mimi. What specific questions are you getting from clients? Maybe some can help to assuage the stresses of anybody listening right now. So a lot of a lot of clients are just asking about what kind of adjustments should I be applying, right? How should we be handling losses or or the other side where there are some companies out there who have actually benefited from the pandemic environment? 
how should we handle the extraordinary profits in certain situations? It's very focused on trying to understand whether or not there were explicit adjustments that could be applied or how financial data should be handled from a booking perspective, right? So there's mm. some operational considerations here. Of course. And I know we've had a lot of episodes with a lot of really talented folks asking what are the biggest mistakes an M&E could make given the current transfer pricing landscape and the pandemic. I feel like we have more data now. We have, we're not talking about this question in theory anymore. What, what are you seeing on the ground now that we've been dealing with this problem for a year? Well, I mean, I think the biggest mistake that multinationals can make here is to ignore the problem, right? So number one, there are still companies out there that don't really think transfer pricing is that much of a risk for their organization, right? And because they've never really focused on transfer pricing related issues, they're not worried about the impact of COVID on their transfer pricing policies and framework. They still feel as if we, we haven't done anything wrong, so we're not at risk. And that I think is a mistake. Because ultimately, just because you haven't done anything wrong as an organization or you're not manipulating your transfer pricing policies or frameworks doesn't mean that you are not at risk from an audit adjustment perspective. There is a significant focus on many tax authorities as it relates to transfer pricing. They are sensitive to transfer pricing related issues. Tax revenues have been impacted as a result of the pandemic. And so... There are lots of opportunities for tax authorities really to, I don't, I don't want to use the word pick on taxpayers, but in some ways, maybe that's the sentiment here, right? To go and challenge taxpayers' assertions as it relates to their transfer pricing framework. Indeed. I was almost going to say cherry pick certain taxpayers. But yeah. That, that might be more pun. But as you're saying, that might be a better way of looking at it. Turning to the subject of today's show, what are some unique features of the Chinese economy in terms of COVID-19? Well, China, as we all know, is the epicenter of COVID. That's where it was discovered. And it was the first major economy struck by the pandemic, right? But on the flip side, it actually appeared that China was the first economy to recover from it as well. So they're one of the only jurisdictions out there that have announced economic growth since the outbreak of COVID. I think it's interesting, you know, because in the U.S., our shutdown happened in March of 2020, right? But in China, economic activities halted around January of 2020. So before we actually shut down here in the US. And then by the second quarter of 2020, China's gross domestic product actually achieved positive growth. And even by the third quarter, we're talking about, you know, over 4% GDP growth, like close to 5% of GDP growth, right? And so China's economy has recovered, I think, when we think about the supply chains, right? When we think right. about the beginning, pandemic impact to the supply chain, you know, there are a lot of multinationals out there that have operations in China. Okay. And what happened in the initial on the onset of the pandemic is that many of those operations had halted, but because of China's response to the pandemic, because of the way that they handled it, they were able to open up with effective precautionary measures in place. And in fact, because they were one of the first to recover in some ways, or basically deploy measures to be able to continue opening up their economy, 
they were able to become a more vital part of the supply chain for many organizations that then had to shut down in other jurisdictions, right? The backup plans, mm-hmm. the backup manufacturing facilities, or the secondary, I should say, in mm-hmm. some ways. So I think that this is one of the major reasons why you see growth in China's economy. It's almost strange. You could kind of feel this unfold over the last year. I had a whole drama with trying to order cat food, and it, it became much easier around August, July, as supply chains became better. It, it was uncanny. I wonder if your cat food actually came from China. You know, I I dove a little bit in on Petco and I saw enough to more or less draw that conclusion. But I'd say it was probably even a function of the overall global economy. But I could kind of just see this ebb and flow as we're describing it of immediate shutdown. And then all of a sudden, a couple months later, things start. Things are recovering. Right. Right. Well, do you remember speaking with Dennis Blackburn at Technical Consumer Products? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things, and this was, you know, in the early stages of the U.S. lockdown, right, which was post when China started to have some economic recovery. So where the U.S. and, and China were two different stages of the pandemic impact. And one of the things he was highlighting to us, the story that I remember is that they have significant operations in China. In fact, their company is a Chinese-owned company. But when they were trying to ship products, what they had is they had a situation where the guy driving the truck in China, he had to stay in the driver's seat while they loaded up the truck. Once they loaded up the truck and he drove to the destination, to the ports, he stayed once again in the driver's seat, didn't leave that, and then they unloaded the truck. Then when he returned to his facility, he had to quarantine for two weeks at that time. Yeah. And so they had rigorous precautionary measures in place, even as they opened up, even as they were trying to facilitate the continuation of business. Of course, just a behemoth task for everybody involved. And that is a very illuminating episode on everything we're talking about. And Let's talk about China's transfer pricing rules. They are based on the arm's length principle, though there are many unique concepts and approaches and local practices. What are some of those? Well, I think if we go back to some of the history of China's transfer pricing rules, one of the things that most people will acknowledge is this idea of location-specific advantages. So China was one of the first jurisdictions really to focus on this idea of location-specific advantages. They wanted adjustments for that. They wanted remuneration for that because so many multinationals were opening up facilities in China. Clearly, there was some sort of advantage that they were benefiting from. And therefore, should that not receive some level of economic remuneration? So that's definitely a concept that they focus on in China. I also think that there's a focus on local comparables, right? And so the adequacy of local comparables. In fact, it's funny because China does want local comps, but they don't want local comparable private company data. They acknowledge that the accuracy of data coming from private companies is perhaps tainted or not audited, right? The private company data is not necessarily always audited and cannot necessarily be validated because it's not subject to the same level of rigor as public company financial data. So they have, in certain situations, highlighted that they have a preference for more reliable data, clearly Chinese comparables, but ideally publicly traded so that they have some rigor standard as it pertains to the type of information and data that they're using, 
China also has specific focus on this concept of the value chain analysis, and they want to understand that because they do think, and this goes to the location savings advantage concept. I think that the value chain analysis is that second stage or second level to enhance their. Perspective on location savings advantages, right? They do want to see multinationals demonstrate exactly how the China operation contributes to the overall value within the organization, and they want to look at that in order to clearly understand what their percent of the overall taxable income should be, what the overall contribution should look like. I was also going to say, when we think about the transfer pricing methods, they do have a strong preference for profit-based methods, like the transactional net margin method, and and something I think that we should keep in mind, right, is that China is technically not an OECD member, but they do generally follow the OECD guidelines, as many countries do, right, and they're part of the inclusive framework discussion. So that's always something I think is is important to keep in mind. Of course. Now, what are some questions that Chinese entities might have in terms of transfer pricing in light of COVID? Ultimately, I think when we think about the impact of COVID or the you know what the transfer pricing issues are in light of COVID, there could be some exceptional costs that companies have incurred, right? And so you have to think, okay, how should these extraordinary costs be handled? Should they be part of the transfer pricing cost base? Should they not? Especially if you're talking about a cost plus remuneration, does that count as part of the cost? Should be handled, or should they be handled as a one-off type of expense? How do you make sure that your comparability analysis is appropriate? Right? How do you make sure that the third-party companies that you're using as comparable benchmarks have, in fact, recorded their financial data similarly to the way that your tested party? Has recorded their financial data, right? What does it mean to be a limited risk entity? I think this notion or this concept of, you know, risk limitations, especially in the transfer pricing context, you know, what does that mean? What's the economic reality of that? Because really, the pandemic environment challenges this framework because, you know, ultimately, limited risk doesn't mean no risk. So, what's an appropriate level of losses to be incurred? I, I think. It challenges the transfer pricing agreement, the terms and conditions, in in a lot of ways because it triggers the force majeure clause, right? And so, how does disaster get impacted on the books or recorded on the books? The other question I think that we still are going to struggle with a little bit here is. How are you going to record the impact of government subsidies? How does that impact the financial data of all of the different companies out there in the transfer pricing context? How do we control for that, right? Because, you know, all of these extraneous data points need to be controlled for in order to make the appropriate apples to apples comparison. That's right, Mimi. And as our more astute listeners probably remember, you actually wrote a white paper on the OECD's COVID guidance. That's on our website at xbs.ai. And you wrote about the OECD's recommendations on handling exceptional costs, adjusting strategies and comparability, how to handle limited risk entities where in a pandemic those routine profits are thrown way off course. You wrote about government subsidies in that report. What did you learn from going through this guidance, I think the general sentiment here really is that the the OECD's guidance is to help taxpayers apply the same economic principles that apply to any transfer pricing analysis, and and to understand that 
even though the pandemic has created some complexity in terms of understanding the intercompany dealings, you know, the pricing policies, and triggered some terms and conditions within intercompany contracts, right? It doesn't necessarily mean an, an abandonment of the arm's length standard. This is in practice a realization of the arm's length standard on a global scale, right? Because ultimately companies all around the world have been impacted by the pandemic. And we're going to see how the economic realities of that play out. I think the challenge right now is purely, you know, how do we apply these adjustments in in practice, right? How do we control for as many of these pandemic wildcard factors as we've seen? And interrupting very briefly for our first CPE code word, and that code word is exceptional, as in exceptional costs. And speaking of, let's talk about exceptional costs. What costs are we talking about there? I think when we think about exceptional costs, you know, government mandates, right? Where governments have basically told businesses, you need to stop operations. And stopping those operations ultimately impacted businesses because, for example, the restaurant down the street, right? They couldn't open, but they still had to continue to pay rent. And then it's not as if they didn't have those costs that they had to continue to incur, even though operationally they were forced to shut down. And so they have unrecoverable costs. We also think about exceptional costs as costs related to how businesses, in light of trying to reopen their operations, how have they reconfigured their workspaces, right? So I'll, I'll take my children's school, for example, and my kindergartner is going back to school full time. But one of the things that they had to do is clearly, you know, incorporate plexiglasses. They probably had to stock up on masks and things of that nature and hand sanitizer, right? That's going to be on my back to school list for next year, Kleenex tissues and hand sanitizer. (laughs) So we want to build up a, a safe environment for people to be able to resume everyday life and activity, right? But from a business perspective, this this is also applicable because you want to be able to create a safe working environment. For example, at Cross Border Solutions, our Florida office, we have daily COVID testing, right? And we've implemented certain systems in place, like an automated system that takes your temperature before you actually enter the, the office. So it's pretty sophisticated a structure, I think, of measures that that businesses are having to do in order to create a better working environment and in order to go back to at least a sense of normalcy, right? And even work from home ish situations. Like I had to invest in a new monitor, for example, you know, do we need to invest in better chairs? I think we talked about standing desks, you know, should that be a, uh, (laughs) if you have to invest in a new standing desk, for example, those are all expenses that the business may incur. And the question will be, how should those expenses be recorded? Because they really are sort of these forced expenses on a one-time basis as a result of the pandemic. I can see some stingy jurisdictions claiming that we should have been using standing desks all along and we can't count those. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) How should those be treated, those costs, be treated in light of COVID-19 per OECD guidance? 
let's go back to the basics of the arm's length principle, right? Because I love going back to the basic idea of what would third parties do under comparable circumstances? So if you're talking about the sale of a good between a manufacturer and a distributor on a related party basis versus a non-related party basis, the question will become, would the manufacturer ultimately have to charge for those exceptional and extraordinary costs in terms of the investment and the underlying facilities to help accommodate better work environments or safer work environment? And in some cases, the answer will be yes. In other cases, the answer could be no, right? And so in that particular example, I can I can actually make an argument to be made that says, yes, those costs were a necessary cost of being able to manufacture the goods that are then sold to the third-party distributor, and you would see that under third-party market conditions, and therefore, it makes sense on a transfer pricing basis for those costs to be incorporated into the underlying transfer price on a related party basis. But it all goes back to being able to defend that position and actually going and looking at those third-party market observations to say, would we see that in real circumstances between unrelated parties? So what does China have to say about that? China, I think, ultimately, they're of the mindset that, yes, companies have to consider how these expenses and how the risks should be allocated between these related parties based on the functions and based on the risks assumed by each party. They do take a similar position, right? They want to make sure that companies are taking into consideration the overall transfer pricing policies, the existing agreements, and making adjustments accordingly. Now, when we think about exceptional costs being borne by the local company, you know, in China's particular situation, I have to say, perhaps it makes sense that the local company continues to incur those costs. And what's the rationalization and what's the benefit of incurring it locally? Well, because certain Chinese entities were able to deploy these precautionary measures, they were able to open up and then they got the benefit of being part of additional supply chains, right? That perhaps, you know, sort of a windfall, if you will, because of government lockdown measures in other jurisdictions. So ultimately, those exceptional costs resulted in exceptional revenues in that particular situation, So, which justifies that the local entity should incur those costs. And another word for exceptional would be special. We're going to make that our second CPE code word. Second CPE code word coming right at you. Again, that code word is special. It sounds like exceptional costs and special factors are ambiguous enough to attract attention from the Chinese tax authorities. Mimi, how can a taxpayer prepare for that? I, I think it all goes back to proper record keeping, proper documentation, right? And just support of the the rationalization of, of what exactly constitutes exceptional costs and, and or special factors. It's always about demonstrating or being able to demonstrate that third-party companies had to incur similar costs or would have incurred those similar costs because of these special situations that we're dealing with right now. In addition, I think you have to be mindful and you have to be prepared to support that any type of special factor adjustment needs to be applied not only 
on perhaps the tested party, but on the comparables, right? At the end of the day, you always want to make sure that adjustments are applied so that you make a proper apples to apples comparison as much as you can. Not mm. you don't want to compare apples to cars. Nope. <laughs> apples to pears, fair. Apples to oranges, you still have a basis. But right. apples to cars. <laughs> Can't drive an apple to work. Comparability, right. <laughs> comparability has been a consideration for every multinational company in terms of comparability analyses. China's economy was an anomaly in 2020. It was the only major economy to achieve positive GDP growth. It had a strong manufacturing sector. China was starting to contain the virus in February 2020 while the rest of the world was still getting hit. Caused the resurgence in Chinese manufacturing. How else was China uniquely affected? So, I mean, this goes to what I was saying earlier that I think China had a little bit of a boon because they were able to recover more quickly from the pandemic, right? So they had an opportunity to actually have positive economic growth, certain types of industries like healthcare, for example, right? Telecommunications, those types of industries relied on China's open economy, China's enhanced precautionary environments to be able to continue to support, you know, the global needs, right? Global needs for PPE, right? And so, and telecommunications, because everybody was working at home, very important to be able to make sure that networks were working properly, that people were able to continue to work from home on a remote basis, right? And so China, their quick recovery has benefited them greatly. I mean, they've, they've also had, you know, benefits in terms of the takeaway food market, right? Online e-commerce, they're companies like Alibaba, they compete with Amazon, same thing. It's the businesses were positively impacted as a result of a more remote working environment, as well as government lockdowns and mandates. So China was able to recover more quickly, right? Luxury retail, right? Luxury retail in China is actually growing as well. And I think because of restricted travel, the retail sector in China, I, I, I will tell you and that luxury goods in the Asian markets does very well. Hence, because you know tourism is dead right now because of COVID, because of travel restrictions, the luxury retail markets in China locally are doing much better because people are not traveling to go to Italy directly or, or to France to be able to buy certain luxury goods, right? So in other words, China was in demand because so many other countries were out of commission. China citizens are very good at following rules, surely helped that recovery. So Matt, I completely agree with you about the fact that the citizens in China are very good at following rules. Just culturally speaking, children are taught at a very young age to respect authority. Like that is that is a cultural difference, right? And in, by the way, even before the pandemic, mask wearing was a social norm. And I want right. to highlight this because whenever people are feeling a little bit under the weather or coughing, masks were worn just uh, yes. all the time. So it, it is a socially acceptable norm, which I think had a very positive impact to helping China recover 
quickly. That's right. That's right. And uh, lots of great journalism on those differences in in terms of mask wearing and cultural norms. Now, what does this mean for transfer pricing? Oh, boy. So, <laughs> I mean, I... I think from a transfer pricing perspective, right, there are lots of issues here. I mean, when we think about China and transfer pricing, we already know that China is a high-risk jurisdiction. We know that because of China's positive GDP growth, there's an opportunity, right? There's an opportunity for the China tax authority to perhaps look at things more closely. When they look at the financial positions of the companies that have been able to recover quickly in China. I, I think the Chinese tax authorities will be pleased, right? They'll see growth. They'll see that each of the operations, perhaps locally in China, were not as negatively impacted as many other jurisdictions. But the opportunity here is also that they're going to look at things a little bit more closely because if a company does make modifications to the transfer pricing framework and policy and then record some of those losses to the China operation, for example, because perhaps it was, I don't know, some sort of shared cost structure that already pre-existed, right, under their transfer pricing policy and therefore these losses should be incurred by China locally as well, they're going to scrutinize those much more closely. It's going to be a red flag when they see that certain companies are incurring losses because on an overall basis, the general sentiment and understanding is that Chinese companies, especially in certain industries, by the way, right? It's, it's limited to certain industries, but that those companies actually were able to achieve more positive growth. And so because of that, I think, they're going to be looking at that very closely. Now, keep in mind that, you know, from a standard transfer pricing practice, remember some countries look at things on a one-year basis versus a three-year basis. China does look at things on a three-year basis. They're going to look at the benchmarking and the results. They're going to want to see how the company's profit margins or PLIs compare to the prior year and then compared to the benchmarks. And they're going to make sure that there's a little bit of consistency, right? And year over year basis. If the company's financial position in 2020 is unusual, either positive or negative, right? Then perhaps a company will need to take into consideration, hey, should we be looking at, you know, data on a more frequent basis? Is there are there certain adjustments that could potentially be made? Those special factor adjustments, right? Should we perhaps look at the comparable data across historical years during previous recessionary periods? Should we do some sort of regression analysis to understand whether or not this change in the profit levels is appropriate given the current environment? So I think from a transfer pricing perspective, right, the, the simple answer here is it creates complexity, but practically speaking, right, don't forget, we're still applying the arm's length standard as it relates to these intercompany transactions. 
Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You you know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. Now, does China require local comparables? And what happens if a company has passed comparables from other jurisdictions? So they do prefer local comps. As stated before, I think that there's a preference for local comp data that's this public data as opposed to private company data. And I think if you do not have local comparables when you do your transfer pricing analysis, that could give rise to challenges, right? Because once again, government impacts, government mandates, I should say, had a significant impact to potential multinational economic recovery. So Essentially, if you don't have local comparables, I think that there needs to be some sort of adjustment perhaps to take into account geographic market differences. Now, this has always been important, by the way, on a pre-pandemic basis for China because of their concept or, or their reliance on this idea of location-specific advantages. That needs to be addressed. And you know, location-specific advantages or country risk adjustments can be applied on a quantitative basis, or there could be a qualitative description to provide a perspective on why or why not they may be necessary for this particular industry or tested party. So remember, I think, you know, from a comparability perspective, at least for transfer pricing purposes, remember, the focus is on functional comparability, right? We need to be cognizant of the functions being performed and the risks being assumed and evaluate the merits of the benchmarks on those bases and then apply adjustments on an as-needed basis. Now, do you think tax authorities will relax local comparable standards due to COVID around the globe or will they be more committed? Oh, I think they're going to be more committed to local comparability standards because I, yeah. there's, there, it's going to be really challenging to control for all the variances in terms of how businesses were able to respond, you know, especially the variances in terms of government responses to the pandemic, right? It's going to be very difficult to try to quantify that impact and, and adjust comparables accordingly. The easiest way to sort of navigate that is to rely on local comparables. Another concern taxpayers have about COVID is reporting losses. How will that play out in China? So it's interesting because I think when we think about many of the operations of multinationals that are based in China, we are thinking about entities that are perhaps set up 
for limited risk distribution or contract R&D activities or contract manufacturing activities, right? And a lot of times those types of companies are set up with a policy to give them a specified level of remuneration, sort of, you know, a cost plus X percent, right? And so they take their costs and, and so they always record a profit. So when we think about a company in a loss situation, first of all, if the losses were genuinely incurred, right? It all goes back to the documentation. It has to be prepared as part of that qualitative narrative, the contemporaneous local file. It needs to be addressed. I think any company in a loss position right now is expected to prepare that local file documentation, regardless of whether or not it actually reached certain intercompany filing thresholds, right? The tax authorities are going to focus on this. I think the SAT explicitly had issued this bulletin on issues to improve reporting of related party transactions and administration of contemporaneous documentation. Sorry, that was a mouthful, but that's what the (laughs) bulletin was called. And in that, it explicitly states that if you are a company in a lost position, you have to have contemporaneous documentation, right? And then if the enterprise actually assumed these risks and losses because of poor decision-making, sluggish sales, failure. So the tax authorities actually have the right to conduct certain special tax adjustments. Now, the issue will be, how do you know it was wrong decision-making? How do you, what's causing the sluggish sales, right? Why did the R&D fail? And, and so the business perspective clearly is going to be important in order for the taxpayer to be able to articulate their side of the story before the tax authority makes any type of adjustment or comes to any specific conclusion that, oh, you're, you incurred this loss. We don't think it's an appropriate level of loss. We're going to make an adjustment. Right, right. Now, I was reminded by the law I want to pass that I brought up the last time we were speaking about that bulletin, how we should have acronyms that don't need to make any sense, but just sound nice. That, that's a good candidate. <laughs> well, that could be BERTAC. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the fun you can have. Who, who says transfer pricing needs to be so stuffy and boring? Now, what do losses mean in terms of transfer pricing documentation? How do you account for them? So when you think about a Chinese entity, you know, as as I was indicating before, when you think about an entity that is suffering losses, you know, the losses has to be justified from an economic perspective, right? And so once again, if you are incurring a loss, the documentation becomes that much more important. The assessment of whether or not that loss is attributable to a certain risk that that entity is bearing as a result of the transfer pricing value chain, right? Or this transfer pricing, you know, delineation of functions and risks. When you think about the documentation and the support of losses, remember, it's the application of the arm's length principle, right? And so you have to be able to justify using third-party observations, for example, third-party situations to be able to support certain allocation of costs and losses in this post-pandemic environment. And pausing for a moment for our third and final CPE code word, and that code word is unique. Exceptional, special, unique. Are we describing our listeners? 
And in speaking of, given China's unique position in the pandemic, it's also possible that Chinese limited risk companies may have achieved extra profits in 2020 compared to normal years. For example, COVID closed down overseas operations in various places and China's manufacturing entities picked up the orders, of course. That's right. I think when we were talking about this before, because China, many of China's operations were able to pick up the excessive orders, there could be excessive profits, right, on these so-called limited risk entities. Now, the Chinese tax authorities could, they could absolutely lean on this excess profit as existence of location-specific advantages, right, because of the fact that, you know, the Chinese government's responses, as well as China's economic recovery. Those are location-specific advantages. And the SAT kind of leans on that as, hey, location-specific advantages should be retained here locally. And I think that's an area that we're going to have to pay close attention to because we are going to see some deviation from that. Right. So excessive profits could actually cause problems? You, you would think that would be a good problem to have, the SAT being China's tax authority. Yeah, I mean, excessive profits, the problem is that it could trap those profits locally, right? And then create long-term impacts to the organization, which is, you know, the, if, if the SAT is successful in terms of arguing that those excessive profits continue to result in benefits that should be taxed locally, that's going to perhaps force multinationals to change their transfer pricing policies as it relates to their Chinese entities. It could definitely create some, some long-term headaches. China's national and local governments issued various assistance policies to help business survive during the pandemic. Uh, there was rent relief, social security relief, loan discounts. Will this kind of assistance be viewed as having economic relevance? Absolutely. I mean, all of these different government assistance programs clearly impacted how businesses were able to respond, how they were able to maintain and sustain their operations. And it's going to have to factor into the comparability analysis, right? So there's this concept of survival bias when you do a comparability analysis. And what does that really mean? Well, it means when you do a comparability analysis, you only include companies that are still in existence. But that's a, that's a form of bias, right? Because right. not every company was able to survive. And those companies that were no longer able to survive, does that reflect that they were not operating under market conditions? No, that's, that's not true. But you can't do an analysis with data that doesn't exist. So right. <laughs> unfortunately, the reality is survival bias gets introduced into these types of comparability analyses. But that's where you have to, at least as a practitioner, be mindful of that, understand the implications, understand exactly how government assistance perhaps played a factor into this particular type of analysis that's being performed, right? And in order to reflect that the transfer prices were, in fact, at arm's length, I mean, that's, that's the bottom mm -hmm. line. That's what we need to be focused on and we need to be able to demonstrate. So this must be particularly complicated because there are so many types of government assistance. Absolutely. Yeah, there are lots of different types of government assistance, right? So, for example, I mean, when you think about government loans, the PPP loan versus a subsidy, well, 
I guess in that case, they almost operate similarly because subsidies are not repayable, right? Versus a loan typically is repayable in the PPP situation, though it most likely will be forgiven in many situations. So those are the nuances that have to be taken into consideration, different government responses, right? Is this something that creates a liability on the balance sheet for the company? How does that impact the returns? Does it create an asset for the company, right? And how does that affect return on assets, for example? And the thing about a lot of that assistance is it has to be paid back over time. In other cases, that assistance has to be paid back right away. Other cases, it may not have to be paid back at all. How do you think of that in terms of a transfer pricing perspective? So when we think about the long-term ramifications of what these government assistance programs are providing to businesses, right? The natural question is, how should these expenses be accounted for? I mean, if you're talking about some sort of government assistance that is payable over a long-term time horizon, shouldn't those government loans be recorded as part of the transfer price expense base, right? That interest expense. Should that be part of the actual transfer price expenses or not? Typically, when you do a transfer pricing analysis, to be to be fair, interest expenses are not naturally accounted for. So when you think about loans and whether or not those have an impact to the profitability of the tested party, it may or may not need to be factored into that, right? But in this particular case, when we think about the pandemic and the sustainability of the organization, does that all of a sudden give rise to the need to include interest expense as part of the transfer price? It's still a question in my mind. I think it's a, it's a very valid question whether or not tax authorities are going to treat that a little bit differently. Yeah, it's still, it's still a question mark, I think, in my mind. So in terms of governments and assistance, uh, companies have intergroup financial arrangements, grants, loans, all kinds of financial transactions, and the OECD released guidance specifically on financial transactions. Are those guidelines being used or should be used in relation to government assistance? Is there any overlap there? So government assistance or government financial assistance, let's just say, right, they're not necessarily subject to the same type of standards as intercompany financing because government assistance programs doesn't necessarily, for example, take into account your company's credit score. It's available based on certain parameters and characteristics of the business versus intercompany lending activities. That is directly related to you know, what kind of financing would your related party have been able to obtain had it gone into the lending market, right? Had to try to find this form of financing from third-party lenders. So it is a little bit different in terms of the treatment. And therefore, this is why I think it's interesting and it'll be nuanced when we see the implications of these amounts and how they should be captured, right? Because should these benefits really be captured as part of the ongoing operational framework for transfer pricing purposes? And in some cases, I think the answer could be yes. I think the tax authority could argue that they should be included. So COVID clearly complicates transfer pricing in some respects, but has it really changed transfer pricing practices? Well, I mean, it hasn't changed the practices the core premise of transfer pricing, which is the arm's length principle. The idea here is that 
everything centers around operating at arm's length, we still have to be mindful of how we are delineating the transactions between related parties, right? We still have to be mindful of how are we representing arm's length pricing from a profitability perspective? What method would be applicable in this situation? What are third parties doing in light of the pandemic? I think that what we are seeing is we're being challenged to look at businesses, look at all of these various factors and characteristics of the businesses that perhaps we've taken for granted as practitioners in the past. You know, when we think about limited risk structures and and the type of risk being borne, it brings me back to just the basics of a functional analysis. One of the things, you know, when we do functional analysis as a practitioner is we ask a bunch of questions to the businesses and and some questions sound very silly to say, hey, what happens if your warehouse blows up? Who bears the risk of the inventory and all the underlying assets? And to make people think about these worst case scenarios, right? Most people right. will sort of shrug it off and, and they'll laugh and they'll say, well, we didn't really think about that. But the reality right. is here, right? This is one of those worst case scenarios. The pandemic has challenged companies to think about this situation. Okay, what do we do? How do we deal with it? How are we dealing with it? It is forcing all of us to consider all these various elements of the contractual terms and obligations and, you know, risk-bearing liabilities that impact transfer pricing. It has always impacted transfer prices, right? It's, it's always impacted it, but these concepts never came to fruition, so they were never challenged. So Mimi, are clients looking at it from the worst case scenario point of view? I think so. I mean, I think I think when you you know, this is this is worst case scenario in the sense that this is happening on a global basis, right? And so it's not just happening within one part of their supply chain, but it's impacting their organization on a global basis. So it is this worst case scenario framework of understanding how they should be operating on an intercompany basis, not only from a pricing perspective, but even from an operational perspective. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. And Mimi, you are no stranger to our rapid fire round of what we want to know questions. This is a special COVID themed hot seat. Let's start with question one, COVID-19 pandemic survival tip. What's yours? Board games, I, playing board games. Honestly, I, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think I, I had told you this before. We actually have two pandemic board games that we play. 
one one's called yes. rapid response and the <laughs> other one is just a regular pandemic board game but it's it's been a lot of fun it's 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 a really good way to just have fun with the family and it's not forced fun i i personally i, I love board games so <laughs> it's it's yeah. a good way to just you know, focus on non-pandemic related issues unless you're actually playing pandemic. So. Yes. And in the context of this question, we can raise this from a fun thing to do in pandemic to an full-blown <laughs> survival tip, because who knows how it would end if we didn't have born games. Uh, what did you learn about managing from work at home? Schedules and signs. So having signs on my door when I have an important call, I think has that the, the children have learned. Okay. Don't, you can't, busted on mommy when she's on a webinar there's a sign they made for me specifically for webinars which is nice and and schedules because you know between when you're at home you forget that it's dinner time or that it's lunch time right? like there's no specific times that you walk away from your computer because you think oh i'm at home i'll just get a bite to eat whenever whenever i want yeah. right but having a set time when we know that for example the kids are eating lunch or when we're going to have dinner set out i think it helps to make sure that we walk away from the desk right or else i could literally be changed yeah. my desk all day and night absolutely for our next question very important who is your favorite podcast script writer uh, hands down mary lynn strom what <laughs> <laughs> i really thought this would be a sophie's choice i'm sorry christy <laughs> that's okay seniority polls here at cross-border solutions we're gonna leave it at that <laughs> we don't want any bruised egos what do you think is the biggest challenge for tax departments at m e's today well you know, if you asked me this question a year ago, it would have been different. But today, I I do think it's hiring. Interestingly enough, a lot of companies that I've been speaking with are looking for talented tax professionals. And I don't know if yeah. this it's perhaps this mindset of, hey, everybody's budget constrained, so we have to bring more processes internally, perhaps. But I do think that given given the complexity of the tax environment, the global tax environment, I should say, finding the right talented professionals seems to be a major challenge for a lot of multinationals. That's right. And perhaps most importantly, how do you achieve work-life balance? So that's a that's an interesting question because I, I, I've started thinking about the fact that I, I don't know exactly when it was, but I don't know if it's necessarily about a balance. It's, it's a choice. It's a conscious choice I'm making as an individual, as a mother, in terms of what I am doing here during this time, what I'm here doing here at that time. I don't know if it's, I don't think that there's necessarily a balance because balance to me implies 50-50, right? The way that I look at it is I have to be mindful of my choices. And as long as I'm happy with my choices, then I know I'm making the right choice, right? And 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 that's not all the time, but I, I do try to make sure that, listen, if, if, if I have to do a family-related thing, like earlier today, I had the read aloud for my children's diversity and inclusion Zoom meeting for their school. Yeah. I, I made a choice to participate in that because I want to make sure to make these types of memories for my children, so. 
We want to thank Mimi again for being on today's program. We want to thank everyone at home for tuning in. If you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And while you're there, don't forget to check out our short form transfer pricing in the news podcast. That's the Fiona Show hot off the press. My name is Matthew DeMello, and they let me host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. Until next time, everyone, stay safe, wear a mask, and we'll catch you next week. Bye.